you never are too young to make a difference. Or at least that's what the young King Josiah believed. He was eight years old, according to Second Kings chapter 22 and verse one, when he began to reign and he reigned in Jerusalem as king for 31 years. He had a lot to overcome. His father Ammon before him was wicked and his father Manasseh before him was wicked. Not only were they wicked, but they introduced and entrenched Israel in idolatry for centuries. And yet for all of the wickedness that went before Josiah, he saw fit to turn the tide. He did the things that he could within his generation to right the wrongs of his ancestors, to get Israel back on track, to help to make them become a people of the book as God had always intended for them to be. In fact, Second Kings 22 and verse two says that he was a righteous king. And then it links him up and it says that he walked in the ways of the Lord and followed in the ways of good King David. He's called the good King Josiah. And for good reason, he changed Israel's destiny because he had courage. After he had reigned for eight years, when he was 16 years old, Second Chronicles 34 and verse 3 says he began to seek the Lord. He thought it was a good thing to try to find God and make sure that he got the people out of idolatry and back on the right path with God. And so he went throughout the territory in and around Jerusalem and began to tear down the groves and the idols and the things that people had put in place of God. And he was making a change, but he hadn't gone far enough. And then when he was 26 years old, 26 years old, after he had been king for 18 years, Second Kings 22 that was just read in our hearing a moment ago by Todd tells us what happened. There was a construction project going on on Israel's temple and he sent the the scribe Shaphan down there to Hilkiah the priest with money in order to repair and rebuild the temple. When Shaphan got down there, Hilkiah said, by the way, we've been cleaning up around the temple and we found a book and he read it to Shaphan. And Shaphan took the book and went back and read it to the good king Josiah. When Josiah heard the words. He realized all that Israel had not been doing. He tore his clothes. He cried and he said, we've got to make things right. He sent them to a prophetess named Huldah and she said, it's too late. God's people have not been doing what God had told them to do. And as a result of this, Jerusalem will go into Babylonian captivity. But because Josiah was a faithful and good king, his life will be preserved. His life was cut down prematurely at the age of 39 in the Battle of Megiddo, but he is forever remembered as the good King Josiah because of the mass restoration that he helped to perform in and around Jerusalem as he simply found a book. Commentators are divided. What book of the law did he find? Some people believe he found the book of Deuteronomy. Some people believe he found the law of Moses in its entirety, the first five books. Whatever he found when he read it and studied it, he realized that everything that he'd been seeing around him was wrong. And that he needed to get back to God's standard and do things God's way. You know, it's possible to lose the Bible. Even religious people can lose the word of God and lose the Bible. How might how might we lose the Bible? What are some ways we might lose it through neglect? God says in Jeremiah 25 and verse four, I've sent my prophets rising early in the morning and sending them to you to warn you about the things to come. We might have the Bible under our arms and on our coffee tables and on our phones. And yet it's possible, like the people in the days of Josiah. Listen, they had the law of Moses, but they had gotten so far away from God's word that there came a time when they had to literally dust it off. They actually found the Bible accidentally and we could lose the Bible in this society where we have a plethora of copies through neglect. We might lose the Bible in the pile. And what I mean by in the pile is there are great books that we can read, 
But we might lose the Bible as it is pushed underneath all the other books. A friend of mine does a podcast on books, really on Christian books that help people to better further their relationship with God. But the tagline to his podcast is this. There are many helpful books which man has given to us, but one heavenly book God has given to us. And when we stick with that book, we never go wrong. Sometimes people say, preacher, what's a good book that will help me to better understand Isaiah? My answer to that is always Isaiah. There's a story told about a young preacher who was working on a research paper on the book of Romans. And one of his professors came into the library. And when he came into the library, he could hardly see a student because all of the books were piled above him. The commentaries, the lexicons and all of the secondary literature. The, pre- the teacher said to the student, what are you studying? What are you doing? He said, I'm writing a research paper on the book of Romans. To which the professor responded, where is the book of Romans? In the midst of all of the books, we might lose God's book. We can lose the Bible if we're issue oriented in our faith. This is a struggle, especially for Christians. We might start to view the Bible not as the book that tells us the story about God and his salvation, but merely as a reference book where we go to it and find verses that help us with the latest issue or topic as important as those topics may be. The Bible is not merely a book that shows us that abortion or homosexuality or all of these things are wrong. The Bible touches on those things, but the Bible has a much grander idea in mind, a much grander theme in mind. And we could lose the Bible if we only view it from a issue oriented perspective, if we only go to the Bible to prove us right, if we only go to the Bible to post things on social media and just give us the references and the points we need when we want to get into a debate or an argument with someone else, we could lose the Bible. Paul told Timothy people would have itching ears and we tend to think that those itching ears are about false ideas outside of the Bible, but can also be itching ears about our favorite subjects. And we only come to the Bible for our favorite issues. Here's the last one. We might lose the Bible due to idolatry. That's how Judah lost it. When you start to serve another God, you won't have time to read this book that tells you about the God of the universe. You'll have to go somewhere else. You see, in Judah's day, during the days of Josiah, they had gotten so far away from God that they didn't have time for a book which highly exalts him as creator and sustainer, as judge and ruler of the universe. And we could lose the Bible if we put another God in his place. It happened in the days of Josiah, and it can happen in our time. I was at the barbershop recently, and a man was saying all sorts of things about God, about the Bible, about Jesus, which most of it was crazy and incorrect. And he and I got into a discussion. But one of the things that he said, which was right, was this. You know, there are many people, and he was not a Christian, didn't profess to be one. He said there are many people in Christianity which are now practicing things that are far removed from the book that they claim to profess, things that aren't even in their Bibles, and they don't even know it. And he was right. You see, they've gotten away from Scripture. And the same thing can happen to us. Here's what I want to propose in this sermon. What if we just forget everything we've heard, everything we think we know about Christianity? And what if we, like the people in the days of Judah and the days of Josiah's reign, just find the book? And just do what the Bible says. Don't think about, well, this is how mom did it or dad did it or this is how we've always done it. What if we just go back to the Bible? And when I say go back to the Bible, I don't mean the 1950s or 40s. I mean, go back further than that. And when I say go back, I don't even mean in the days of the church fathers, those men that died right after the apostles in the three and four hundreds. I mean, let's go back even further than that. Let's just go back to the Bible and see what we find when we dust it off. And read it for all it's worth. 
There are a lot of directions we could go in this morning. But what I want to do in the time we have left is I want to lift seven different subjects from the Bible, seven different themes that may be familiar to us or not so familiar and say to us, what will we think or know about these themes if we just looked at what the Bible said? If we just use this tagline, I found a book and insert in blank. What does the Bible say about this subject? And let's do what we can to restore that faithfulness, just like the good king Josiah. Let's begin. Number one, I found the book which teaches us that we have separate covenants. Someone has said the most important page in all of the Bible is the page that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. And many people don't appreciate or realize that there are two different covenants in the Bible. And when we approach Scripture... It won't do any good to say, you know what, I'm just going to open the Bible at will and practice whatever I find on any page. We first should appreciate which covenant do we live under and which covenant are we responsible to? The Old Testament should be studied. It should be learned from. It should be appreciated. But it was written for our learning and not for our law. And so passages like Romans 15 and verse 4 tell us whatever things are written before time are written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. As we read and study the Old Testament, we encounter God and his creation and all of the things that he did for Old Testament Israel. But the Old Testament is not a covenant that you and I should turn to in order to seek to be made right with God. Would you turn your Bible to Jeremiah 31? In Jeremiah 31, we find the Old Testament speaking of its own expiration. In Jeremiah 31, God's telling his people the days are coming when he's going to do something different. And so Jeremiah 31 and verse 31, he says, behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made in the days of their fathers, which I brought out of the land of Egypt. And they broke that covenant, even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. He says, I'm making a new covenant. I put my law in their hearts and their minds. He says, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins and iniquities. I will remember no more. Christians, we are under the new covenant. And the Bible tells us as much. We do in vain go to the Old Testament and say, you know what? I'm going to practice something in the Old Testament. I just like this. It's in the Bible. Sometimes people say they want to practice something religiously. And they say, well, it's in the Bible somewhere. The question is, which covenant is it under? Jesus is the only person who has ever lived, who fulfilled the old law and lived it perfectly. Everybody else fails. Everybody else needs to do the best that they can in the new covenant age to respond to God by faith and not try to be justified by the law of Moses. Peter said in Acts 15 and verse 10, it was a burden which neither we nor our fathers could bear. We're under a new covenant. Just like a man cannot be married to two women at the same time, we can't be under two covenants at the same time and be pleasing to God. That's Paul's argument in Romans 7, 1 through 4. And if we would find the Bible, pick it up and see what it's saying about itself. It's saying, listen, you can't live under two covenants at the same time. And you and I are under the new covenant. And so what does that mean? We should give our efforts, attention and energy to seeing what God has to say to us in the covenant under which we live. It do us no good. To go out and build an ark. I know they built one in Kentucky, but it won't do anything to save us. It do us no good to build a tabernacle or to try to keep the Ten Commandments. Listen, you and I have never been under the Ten Commandments and we never will be. And if we were, we'd break every one of them. We found a book which says, guess what? We are under a new covenant, a better covenant. The principles of righteousness that you find in the Ten Commandments are repeated in the new. But you and I are under a different covenant. Listen to how the book of Hebrews describes it. Hebrews 8 and verse 6 says we're under a better covenant with better promises. Jesus has opened up a new and a living way. Hebrews 10 and verse 20. The new covenant is far more glorious than that which was the old. Second Corinthians 3 and verse 10. And we found a book which tells us so.
let's just pick it up and dust it off and say, you know what? When we think about our practice and our faith, we're going to go back to the covenant that God has given us, the new covenant, the one under which we live. Now, here's number two. Found a book which tells us about the Savior. Our generation is not the first one where people have had questions about who Jesus is. That's always been the case. In Mark chapter 2, when he told the paralyzed man that his sins were forgiven, they said in Mark 2 and verse 7, Who is this that forgives sins? And when he was with his disciples on the sea and he hushed the sea, Mark 4 and verse 41, they said, Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? And most of the people in the time in which Jesus lived believed that maybe he was a carpenter, a prophet, or some other religious figure, but they were all wrong. He was more than that, and he is. Who is Jesus? And what does the Bible say about him? You know, if you go to most people, they believe that Jesus is really the savior of the Christian's choice. You just put him in a line with all of the other religious teachers. He's just like Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, you name it. But the Bible says something different about Jesus and who he is. In Matthew chapter one and verse 21, Mary is told she'll bring forth the son and you'll call his name Jesus and he will save his people from the, from their sins. Jesus is the savior of the world. But it's tempting for us if we get away from the Bible, even though we believe that we know that to make a Jesus in our own image, to build our own Jesus. And what Jesus was often doing in his earthly ministry is saying, I'm not the Messiah that you think I am. I'm the Messiah that I claim to be. Go back to the scriptures and see that they prophesy and they speak about me. Hebrews 10 and verse seven, Jesus says, lo, I come in the volume of the book is written of me to do your will. What does the Bible tell us about Jesus Christ? Who does the Bible say that he is? The Bible says that he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7 and verse 14. The Bible says that he would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5 and verse 2. The Bible actually tells us the kind of preaching that he would do. He would speak to the people in parables. Psalm 78 and verse 2. He would be crucified. Isaiah 53. But the grave would be too weak to keep him held back. And so Psalm 16 and verse 10 says that he would rise from the dead. That's who Jesus is. And that's who the Bible says that he is. When we speak of our Savior, we should say what the Bible says about him. But not only that, the Bible says that Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus is not special simply because he rose from the dead. When you read throughout the Bible, there are many people in the Bible who died and then rose again. That's not what makes him special in and of itself. Jesus is special because he's the first person to rise from the dead, never to die again. And so Colossians 1 and verse 18 says he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first person who rose from the dead and who will never meet death again. Everybody else in the Bible who died and was resurrected, Lazarus and Jairus's daughter, they'll meet their earthly end or they have. But Jesus never will. And so how we respond to him is of the utmost importance. Look at Acts chapter four and verse 12. Look at Acts chapter four and verse 12. What does the Bible say about Jesus? The Bible tells us that Jesus is a savior. Acts 4.12 says, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That is, if anybody would be saved, it's going to be in response to Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Even Christians sometimes say, well, what about people who have never heard the gospel? What about the man in the bush country in Africa? Must they obey the gospel too? must they become disciples of Jesus, too? And surely God's going to make an exception for them. Statements like that are not only inaccurate, they make God wicked and evil. But because when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he begged God. He said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And that prayer request was denied. And he went to the cross. If there is another way and God still allowed Jesus to be crucified, what does that say about him? 
No, Jesus went to the cross because there is no other way. And we get a scriptural picture of who Jesus is when we just turn back to the Bible and see what it says about him. He was with the social outcast of his day. That's who he hung around. He was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He challenged the religious status quo. He never committed one infraction. You and I sin day to day. We make mistakes. Jesus never committed one sin. There has never been a better life lived. He could say in John eight forty six, which one of you convicts me of sin? I've done many good works. For which of them do you stone me? John 10 and verse 32. I know it is tempting to try to find other shortcuts to introduce us to Jesus. But in the end, our best bet, our safest bet, the most scriptural one is to go back to the Bible and see. What does it say about Jesus? We can let other people tell us about Jesus or we can let Jesus tell us about him. And he does that through the Bible. Every year, the History Channel, they run specials about him. And around Easter and Christmas, there are magazines with his supposed on those covers that say the Jesus. And many people want to tell us about who he is. And we might be tempted to say, well, where's the shortcut? Where's the summary of his life? And the Bible is drawing us into itself. Just like Josiah, we should say, you know what? We've heard a lot of things about him. We assume that we know who he is. But what if we just go back to the Bible and let Jesus speak for himself? Now, here's number three. We found a book that tells us about sin. How would you define sin? What is sin? Do we use that word anymore? I was reading something the other day which talked about how words are added to the dictionary and words are taken out. And every year words are taken out of our dictionary. And the individuals that take the words out of the dictionary say that they take words out when words sort of fall out of favor with people. When words become old, archaic and are no longer useful for society, they just pull them out. And they add words into the dictionary when those words become commonplace, popular and accepted by society. And then on occasion, they even will change the definition of words to meet the common vernacular of our day. Sin is still in the dictionary. But I would argue that the definition of such is on the verge of changing. Have you noticed that nothing is wrong anymore? That everything is accepted except saying that something is unacceptable? Everything is approved in society Because we've gotten away from what the Bible says about sin. The Bible says that sin is unrighteousness. First John five and verse 17. Sin is the transgression of the law. First John three and verse four. And every one of us is guilty of it. You see, when we get away from the Bible, it is tempting even among God's people to say, oh, I know exactly what sin is. It's the stuff all the other people do. It's the big things that we see that we despise for maybe what we might consider the political or social left. But the Bible says, guess what? When you lift up the mirror of God's word, you and I are just as guilty. Romans chapter three and verse twenty three. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans three, nine and ten. We found a book which tells us the truth about sin. Look at James chapter one. Turn your Bible to James chapter one and notice what James says about sin in verse 13 down through verse 15. There is this popular idea in our society, and our culture. You see it in popular songs and music. This idea that human beings are born into sin, that we can't help but sin. Sin's like a belly button. You have it whether you want it or not. But the Bible says, guess what? Everybody's guilty of sin, but it's not because we were born that way. It's because we chose it. We've decided to rebel against God. James chapter one is impressive because it not only tells us how sin affects our lives, but it doesn't even to the surprise of many mention the devil. It says that you and I sin because we decide to. We choose to. We can't lay the blame at anyone's feet but ourselves. 
James one and verse 13, James says, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. God can't be tempted with evil and he doesn't tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he's lured away of his own lust and enticed. When lust conceives, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. James says you and I commit sin because we choose to. The world will say, you know what? It's the environment in which you grew up. It's your mom's fault or it's your dad's fault or it's the world at large. James says you're tempted of your own lust. You're pulled away. You're enticed. And you give in. And do you know why you give in? You know why I give in? Because we want to. We choose to. And that's why we need a savior. The world says everything's fine. You're fine. Don't change. In fact, you're the best version of yourself. And the Bible is telling us, no, you're actually guilty of sin. The world says, "Okay, well, maybe there are some sins, the big ones, murder and theft and killing those types of things in the Bible. It's worse than you thought. Gossip and lust and evil thoughts, stuff you don't even do, but you just think it. The Bible says, no, it's worse than you thought. You're guilty of sin. You need a savior more than you even realize. And the wages, the payment that you and I deserve for our sin is death. Romans six and verse twenty three. Imagine growing up in the days of Josiah. Just imagine it. Being in Judah and everybody around you worships Baal. That's all you know. That's what everybody does. You would think it was normal, too. You would think that that's how it's always been. And then one day, Josiah finds this book that's buried in the temple rubble, and he dusts it off, and he says, wait a minute, guys, we've been doing this wrong. We have not only been worshiping God wrong, we've been worshiping the wrong gods, and there are passages which speak to our condemnation for doing so. We've got to turn this ship around. We've got to change. And as you and I confront God in scripture, he says, guess what? I love you more than you could ever imagine. But you are far worse off than you ever dared to dream. You've got to. Only the Bible will be honest enough about us, not only with God's love, but also with our ruin and our sin. And so we've got to dust it off. And let's just go back to the book and see what the Bible says about sin. And when we find it, the first sin that we need to address is our own. I found a book which tells us the truth about sin. Here's number four found a book which tells us the truth about salvation. Forbes put out an article in 2018 with what with what they call the six six needs for all of humanity to live a good and a prosperous life. The six things were food, shelter, clothing. They said companionship, adequate sleep and novelty. We need new things. They said if you get those six things, you'll live a full life. You know, there is nothing inherently wrong with that, that list. Nothing inherently sinful on that list. I like adequate sleep as much as the next person. But. There are two big problems with it. Number one, what if you get everything on that list and you still die? You get everything on that list, but your life still isn't full or flourishing. And the second problem with that list from Forbes is this. This life is not all that there is. You know, our greatest need is not food or shelter or clothing or adequate sleep or even companionship and friendship. You and I, because of the previous point and the reality of sin, we need to be saved. It's a question that occurs several times in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 6, Saul of Tarsus said, Lord, what will you have me to do? The Philippian jailer in Acts 16 and verse 30 says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And here's where the religious world muddies things. Because we've gotten so far away from the Bible. People say whatever they think. Bow your head and say a prayer. Believe and accept Jesus into your heart. Those things aren't in the Bible. 
I, like you, have gone into bathrooms and have been in different places where people leave tracks sometimes. And on those tracks, they'll have what they might call a plan of salvation. And the plan of salvation may include a verse like John 3.16. It may say something like, if you believe Jesus is the Son of God, just repeat after me, say this prayer, and you'll be saved. You'll be sure of heaven. And you might believe that to be all that the Bible says if you didn't have the Bible. But what if we just pick up the Bible and say, you know what? What does the Bible say that sinners need to do in order to be saved? We'll be surprised at what we find. The Bible says you have to believe that Jesus is the son of God. If you don't believe that, you won't be saved. John 8 and verse 24. But that's not all that the Bible says. The Bible says you have to repent of your sins. Acts 17 and verse 30. All men everywhere must repent. You have to confess with the mouth what your heart believes. Jesus is the son of God. You have to say it. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then... Allow your body to be immersed in water, to have your sins forgiven. That's how the Bible makes Christians. Nobody came up with that. Alexander Campbell, Barton Stone, or any of the preachers in what we call the American Restoration Movement, they didn't come up with that. It was in the Bible all this time. They stumbled upon a truth that had recently been forgotten, but they didn't invent the truth. That's not the Church of Christ plan of salvation. That's just the plan of salvation, period. And everybody who has done that, whether we know them or not, whether we've ever seen them or not, whether they align with us or not, are Christians according to Scripture. And everybody who hasn't, according to God's word, is lost. And they'll be lost forever and a day unless we meet them with the truth and in love teach them the reality. Somebody says, well, what about their sincerity? It can't be questioned. What about their desire to please God? It is admirable and should be mimicked. But just because those things are true does not mean we get to toss the book aside and say everybody everywhere that claims anything about Jesus belongs to him and is saved. Josiah looked people in the eyes who have been following an idolatrous past for centuries. And he says, we've got to get back to what the Bible says. We've got to get back to our Bible and say what it says, because we found a book which sets us on the right path. The Bible says it's at the point of baptism that sins are washed away. Acts two and verse thirty eight. It's called the washing of regeneration. Titus three and verse five. First Peter three twenty one just comes out and says it saves you. And Acts two thirty eight, when people on the day of Pentecost said, what do we need to do in order to be saved? They were told, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If there was ever a day when men should have been told there was nothing for you to do, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, surely that would have been the day. But that's not what they were told. And if we just forget everything we've ever been taught religiously and go back to what the Bible says about how people respond to the grace of God, who is a Christian and how do we know for sure? Just go back to the Bible and echo only what we find in Scripture. We'll find out the truth about salvation. Now, here's the next one. Number six. The Savior's church. People are leaving organized religion in droves. Most people have no time for what you and I are doing on this Lord's Day. They want nothing to do with organized religion. And if they want anything to do with organized religion, they want the organized religion of their choice. But what if Jesus has made a choice? The Bible says that he has. In Matthew chapter 16, if you turn your Bible to Matthew 16, Jesus said in verse 18 and verse 19, After Peter confessed him as the son of God in verse 16, he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. In verse 18, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And I say to you, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth would have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth would have been loosed in heaven. Jesus said, I will build my church. And we found a book which tells us about the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. 
And everybody in the world needs to be a member of Jesus's church to do what Jesus would have them to do to get back to what Jesus has called us to to assemble as his people. You see, when people became Christians in the first century, they didn't rise from the waters of baptism and go church shopping. They didn't say, well, I wonder what church I'll be a member of. I wonder where I'll take my family and where we'll assemble. God had already made the choice. People that couldn't save themselves. God said, I have a plan of salvation for you. And those same people were not able or capable of finding their own institution of which to be a part. God says, I've taken care of that as well. And I'll just put you in my family. Sometimes a person says, are you saying that a person has to be a member of the church that belongs to Jesus Christ in order to be saved? Are you saying that everybody else in every other institution is lost? You see, when you make the question phrased that way, somebody says, are you saying this? Is this your judgment? But what if that's what the Bible is saying? What if Jesus says, I only have one family and one institution? The question shouldn't be, well, what are you saying about all these other groups? The question should be, what on earth do I have to do to become a part of that family and that institution? Because that's where I want to be. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood in Acts 20 and verse 28. It's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, 20 and 21, that we might all be one as he is with the father, that we might all be united. Everybody, wherever they're from, to do what he would have them to do. And if you just look out at the religious landscape and look out at the world around us, you might just think Christianity is made up of whatever people want. That's what this man was arguing in the barbershop. He said, listen, you've got all these different churches with all these different doctrines and all of them claim to be following Jesus Christ. He said, I'm not a Christian. I'll never be one. But he said, surely there's something wrong with that picture. And though I disagree with much of what he said, you know, he was right about that. Denominationalism isn't just sinful because it violates scripture. It's bad advertisement for God. When people in different groups that claim to follow the same Bible say, you know what, we believe this. No, we believe that. What if we find a book which says, guess what? Let's just do it God's way. Let's just follow what God has said. And everybody everywhere who obeys the gospel becomes a part of God's family. We found a book which says something to us about scriptural worship. What does God want from you and me in worship? How do we know what's acceptable to him? John 4 tells us in verse 23 that God is seeking individuals to worship him. In fact, God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Sometimes people reduce worship down to a concert, what they like and what feels good to them. And we might lament that and rebuke that in churches of Christ, but we should hold the phones. Because worship is also, while it may not be a rock concert performance based, it is also not this sort of dry and lifeless transaction where we just come in and check the boxes, where we just come in and do the stuff without any spirit, without any emotion, without any passion. Listen, never make people choose between passionate worship and scriptural worship because God demands both. You see signs, contemporary worship and traditional. What if we just try scriptural, just scriptural, just do what the Bible says and just what the Bible says. We'll be pleasing to God. The Bible has been buried or stuck to our dashboards for so long. You know, many people don't realize that the first century church, they assembled. And the only instrument that they used in the worship service was their heart as they sang praise to God. Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19. That every first day of the week, every Lord's Day, they assembled and they partook of the Lord's Supper. Acts 20 and verse 7. No supper, no Sunday service. They gathered in order to remember Jesus who had died for their sins. They gave, but there was no bound percentage. There was no tithing percentage bound on the Christians. No. In the first century, everyone gave freely of their own accord. First Corinthians 16, one and two. And they did it cheerfully. Second Corinthians nine, six and seven. And then there was the preaching. 
There was a message from the word of God, which directed people's mind towards scripture as they continued in the apostles doctrine. Acts two and verse forty two. If our worship will be acceptable to God, we've got to do what we find in the book. No more and no less and do it the way that God would have us to. There's a story told of a man who left worship with his friend. He said, you know what? I didn't like worship today, to which his friend responded. Good. We weren't worshiping you. And some of us need to hear that. We say, why are they singing so loud? Why are they saying amen? Why do they seem to be so passionate? We're we're thinking they're borderline Pentecostal. We're worried about that. We're not worshiping you. And that's not to say that we shouldn't derive some benefit or blessing from worship. But it is to say that every one of us, as we assemble every Lord's Day, should be aiming heavenward because we worship an audience of one. Jesus said in Matthew 4 and verse 10, you'll worship the Lord your God and him only, only shall you serve. What if we just go back to the Bible? What if we just go back to the Bible and let the Bible define what sound worship is, what biblical worship is, not only the things we do, but the manner in which we do those things? We might be surprised that biblical worship was passionate. It was heartfelt. It was encouraging, but it was also bound by what God said in Scripture. Worship isn't about how creative we can become. Listen, every one of us has talent, but worship is not a talent show. What does God say? And what does God want? Here's the last one. We found a book which tells us about the soul's destiny. You know, many people believe that everybody who dies, either nothing happens to them or surely everybody goes to heaven. And they'd be surprised to find out that the Bible actually says in the end, there are two directions that every soul is headed either to be in eternity with God or to be separated from God for all eternity. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, entering at the straight of the difficult gate because broad is the way and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many are going in thereat because straight or difficult is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. This book tells us about the destiny of the human soul. It doesn't make you the judge or me. Jesus said the father has given all judgment to the son. John 5, 22. And we'll be judged by his words. John 12 and verse 48. But would you appreciate this morning that you have an eternal soul that will dwell in either one of two places for all eternity? And the Bible is the only book that tells us where those two places are. In fact, you can't feel it. You wouldn't know you had a soul if the Bible didn't tell you so. The Bible tells us about the soul's destiny and where we will ultimately spend it. And so we need to turn to it to see how it can be saved. Second Corinthians five and verse 10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one of us may receive the things that we've done in our body according to what we've done, whether good or whether bad. We need to turn back to the Bible and see what does it say about the soul's destiny and what does it say about my soul and where I'll spend it. Some people are put off by the Bible because they say they couldn't serve a God who would allow people to perish in hell for all eternity. C.S. Lewis was right when he said, in the end, it's man's choice. He said, nobody goes to hell except they choose it or it wouldn't be hell. To those on earth who say to God, your will be done in the judgment, he says, you want it to be with me. You submit it to my will. Your will be done. And to those who want it nothing to do with God on the last day, they'll get their wish, not for a moment, but forever. God will say to them "Thy will be done. Be separated. That's what you want it. And you can have it. And so as we think about our lives and where we plan to spend eternity, Let's just go back to the Bible. What does the Bible say about the destiny of the human soul? It says it's the most important thing that you possess. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits or loses his own soul? Matthew 16 and verse 26. What is the most important thing in the world? The most important thing is not the war in Ukraine. What is the most important thing in the world is not United States politics 
or whether or not I've lost weight this week or I get the job. What if the most important thing in the world is not my grades or the school I'm going to or the things that seem to be pressing on me so that seem to be rising to a level of importance? What if the most important thing in the world is what have I done with Jesus? And in the end, what's going to happen with my eternal soul? They had to be surprised. They had to be when they finally found the book. Josiah was so surprised that he ripped his clothes. He cried. And he said, we haven't been doing what God has said. We've gotten so far away from the book. He called an entire nation together and he removed every stench of idolatry in and around Jerusalem. No wonder he's called the good King Josiah. But don't you know, he faced some opposition. People said, we've been doing it like this for so long. Who are you to come along and change things? You know, my great granddad, he was a priest and he was a king. He never said anything about this worship stuff that you're saying. I've never heard this before in my life. And Josiah says, well, we we found a book and the book says this is how it's done. You see, a sermon like this isn't really about you. It's not about me. It's not about who's right. It's about what's right. What does the Bible say? What if we just dust it off and say, you know what? This isn't about the church of Christ's way. This isn't about what the preacher says. What if it's just about finding the book? And putting our fingers on passages and letting it lead us to the God who loves us. And we bow before him and say, we've been guilty of transgression and sin. What is it that you would have us to do? And when we do that, we'll find out that he's already told us in the book that he's given to us. There are many helpful books which man has given to us, but only one heavenly book that God has given to us. And when we submit to us in that book, we can be assured that we will meet the God who gave it and we'll meet him in peace. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And through him, we can be justified from everything that we never could under the law of Moses. Aren't you glad for the new covenant of Jesus Christ? Oh, it tells us about our sin. But more than that, it tells us about a savior who loves us, who's provided a plan of salvation. And more than that, a church that we can be a part of a family of God with other imperfect people striving for the same goal. That'll help us as we do our best to limp across the finish line in Jesus Christ. When we do that, we can be assured of the soul's destiny. Maybe this morning, as you've heard this lesson, there's something in you that says, you know what? I've been far removed from scripture. What the Bible says about sin and salvation in my response is foreign to me. And I would like to study the Bible on the subject. Or maybe you already have and you would like to obey the gospel. Maybe you've obeyed the gospel in the past. But like the people in Josiah's day, sin has crept into your life and you need to turn and repent. The Bible tells us that even when we're in Christ, we can repent. We can turn back and God will have us back. As is our custom, we're going to stand and sing a song to encourage us. If you need to respond, if this is your invitation, come now as together we stand and as we sing.